would, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. And um, if you are using one of the Bibles that are in the, uh, in the seat in front of you, that's going to be on page 515. And so feel free to look that up real quick. Luke 23 or page 515 in the uh, Bibles in front of you. And we're going to start uh, this evening uh, in verse 32. And this is what we read. Two others who were criminals were led away to be, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You may be seated. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage language, which once was bright as morn. After a night filled with agonized, solitary prayer in an olive grove, it is prayer so intense that Jesus was actually sweating blood after being betrayed by one of his friends and being denied by another one. And after all of them had just abandoned him, after four trials before the Jews and the Romans, after mockery that included being spit upon and punched and crowned with a thorn branch, after being brutally whipped, leaving his back muscles lacerated to the bone and causing a near-fatal loss of blood, Christ is now commanded to carry the crossbeam of his cross uphill to the place where his death sentence will be carried out. The crossbeam weighed between 75 and 125 pounds. It was laid across his neck and his shoulders and most likely tied to his outstretched arms. Jesus was expected to carry this beam a distance of approximately one-third of a mile. But in his weakened condition, this was impossible. And so the Roman soldiers attending to him conscripted a man named Simon to, from the crowd to carry his cross to Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, to carry it for him. Simon was from the region of Cyrene in, in modern-day eastern Libya. And, and he was probably in Jerusalem as a good Jew for the Passover festivities it's interesting that because Simon's name has been preserved for us and because Mark in his gospel even includes the names of his sons, Rufus and Alexander, who were with him that day, it, it, he, he implies that the readers of his letter originally would have known who Simon, Rufus, and Alexander were. And that leads us, many commentators, to believe that 
after the events of this day that Simon's family became believers in Jesus, which is an exciting thing to speculate about. After arriving atop the hill where they were going on the west side of Jerusalem, Jesus is stripped before the entire crowd. He's offered wine mixed with gall. And, and what that was, it was a mixture of, uh, of an extract of either myrrh or wormwood. And it was a mild analgesic meant to dull the pain he was about to endure. But interestingly, Christ refuses this potion. He says, no way. He stands prepared to drink the full cup of his father's wrath poured out for sin. He will not diminish or dilute it in any way. Jesus had refused earlier in Matthew to use his divinity to shirk the full weight of the cross. He had told the disciples, he said, do you not think that I couldn't call 12,000 legions of angels down to, to defend me if I wanted to? But he didn't do that. He, he didn't use his divinity, divinity to, to escape the cross And now he chooses to take no human or natural shortcuts. He chooses to suffer the totality of the judgment for human sin that will come crashing down on him in this moment. What thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace in an act of mercy that none of us here can fully understand. None of us could ever duplicate. Christ looks at the Jews who accused him. And he looks at the Romans who tormented him. And he says these words, Father, forgive them, all of them, for they know not what they do. You've heard those words many times, but I want you to think about this. He says this. As the cruel and the mocking soldiers who had exposed him, who had stripped him in front of everybody, now gamble for his clothes, trying to steal from him the very last vestige of humanity, of dignity that he had. He requests forgiveness for them, even as the mockery from them intensifies. Both the common people, the soldiers, and, and even the religious leaders taunted Christ. They say things like, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God like he claims to be, if he's really the chosen one, let him save himself. They said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Some kind of king up there can't even come down from the cross, can't even rescue himself. But laying him down upon the wood, those for whom he was pleading forgiveness drove five to seven inch spikes through his wrists into the cross beam and raised him up onto the upright section of the cross, and they secured him there. And once secured, they drove another spike through both of his feet and into the cross, and he would hang there until he bled to death or until he asphyxiated. See, death by asphyxiation was the most common way that people died on the cross. This was because the victim of crucifixion would have to pull himself up on the cross just to take a breath. And when he did so, he would rub the exposed nerves in his wrist and his feet on the nails, and, and he would rub his scourged back on the, on the roughly hewn wood just in order to take a breath. And eventually, in most cases, exhaustion would win out, and the condemned man would no longer be able to exert the effort required just to continue breathing. And this process, as horrifying as it may sound, could sometimes take as long as three to four days to hasten the process of death. The Romans would impatiently often break the legs of the dying men with a mallet 
so that they could no longer lift themselves simply to breathe. It was not enough that Jesus Christ was crucified like a common criminal. Jesus was also crucified with common criminals. Though he was innocent, though he was in fact sinless, hanging to his right and hanging to his left were condemned thieves whose crime and the justice that those crimes demanded had eventually caught up with them. This was in itself a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. He, he spoke of how the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. But he says that even while he was numbered with the transgressors, he would make intercession for those transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To those who heard him say it, it must have seemed like he needed forgiveness. He was in no position to extend forgiveness to anyone. After all, he's the one that was dying there as any other common malefactor would. But it was his purpose. It was the reason for his coming to intercede for transgressors while being regarded just as one of them. Luke says that in this drama that even one of the criminals who had been crucified next to him joined in the crowds reviling of him. They said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the hypocrisy of his bitter outcry was way too much for the other robber hanging on the other side of Christ. He angrily rebukes the other man for his blasphemies. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we ought to be here for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, this to me is a tremendous curiosity that he says this. Why? Because Matthew tells us in his account, in his gospel, that both thieves were reviling Jesus. But then Luke tells us that one reviled Christ while the other insisted upon Jesus' innocence. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? And, And I would say no. A more likely explanation is that the Holy Spirit touched the heart of a man whose soul was dark and guilty, but who now found himself dying next to the Lord Jesus on his own cross. Think about it. He must have been angry. He knew that every chance for an appeal was gone. All his debts had come due. There would be no last-minute appeal. I can't imagine that he felt very charitable or merciful to the poor souls dying with him on that day. When he saw the chief priest down there and the crowd mocking the man beside him, he just joined in. What a great way to to vent his rage and go out defiantly shaking his fist. But then as this man next to him was cursed and mocked and spit upon as he suffered the same shame and the physical pain as he himself suffered, he saw that he didn't spit back bitter words of hatred at those who had put him there in return. Instead, he heard this man in a weakened whisper, with tears in his eyes, look down upon his enraged accusers and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What would cause him? What would cause him to be so benevolent, so generous with compassion and forgiveness for these bloodthirsty animals? They were as undeserving as anyone ever could be to be forgiven. And yet this man next to him was sincere and urgent as he begged for his father to overlook their hypocrisy, overlook their malice. 
He looked to the crowd. Their curses and cruel laughter and their spitting just continued. They never stopped. They didn't want this offer of forgiveness. They certainly didn't even look like they thought they needed it. They thought they were delivering justice. They thought they were doing God a favor by getting rid of this blaspheming lunatic. But looking at the bloody but gentle countenance on the man gave a sudden realization. Though the screaming crowd rejected that offer of mercy, the thief knew he needed what they despised. He knew he needed it. He'd been a rebel all his life. He was always in trouble. He'd made lots of excuses, but he always knew he was guilty. And a day of justice had come at long last. What was happening to him was his rightful due. But if Christ hanging there next to him would offer mercy to his his accusers who showed no remorse or no intention to repent, they didn't even want what he was offering, what would he do? What would Jesus do if someone asked him for mercy? What would he do if he said, I'll take it? The sign that was above his head as he was hanging there said that he was the king of the Jews. And what if he was? What if he was? What if he was the long-awaited Messiah that all Israel had been looking for for so long? If if so, then maybe, just maybe, the cross wouldn't be the end of his story. So he made a decision. He would ask the king for mercy. I mean, Jesus could say no then his fate wouldn't be any worse than he imagined it was going to be anyway. So with all the volume in his, in his pained body, all the volume he could muster, yet with a trembling voice he makes his request, Hey, Jesus, you're a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, barely alive, slowly, painfully turns his head to gaze at the man. What would he say? What? What was the man hanging there in for? Why should he give such a vile sinner such a tremendous honor? Yet through raspy gasps forth from the depths of his battered body, the man clearly heard Jesus say, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Could it, could it be? Was it possible? Could, was he going to be forgiven even as he hung condemned? Was he welcomed even as he had been cast out? Was he loved even though he had been despised and abused? Though the physical pain didn't subside, a strange peace overwhelmed the man as he considered Jesus' words. Today, today. What is Jesus saying? He, he wouldn't have to wait for his blessing. He wouldn't have to clean himself up or work himself up. Though his death was imminent, joy would be his before the sun had set this very evening. You will be with me. No more would he be an embarrassment. No more black sheep of the family. No more an outcast from respectable society. Why? Because he had been accepted into the eternal presence of Israel's forever king and his their eternal messiah with nothing at all to prove or to earn in paradise what a contrast was his promised destination to his present circumstance soon all this searing pain in his body would be gone this shameful humiliation would be erased soon the free gift of undeserved mercy love and forgiveness would be his and everything would change. 
What language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. And this is the point of the cross. It's the burning beating epicenter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beautiful, innocent Son of God absorbing the full brunt of God's holy wrath against sin so that we who are guilty, we who stand condemned before Him, can be fully forgiven and fully reconciled. The theological designation for this concept is called justification. It means that because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus who volunteered to be our substitute, that if I believe, I am regarded by God just as if I never sinned. Justification is never made for the merely morally upright because they're merely morally upright. The socially acceptable can't schmooze their way in. The wise can't think their way in. The strong can't force their way in. And the rich can't buy their way in. Only those who believe can be justified. Only those who believe. Only those who demonstrate that belief by saying like the thief, Jesus, remember me, can be justified. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Folks, it doesn't matter if you're a hobo or a millionaire. It doesn't matter if you're a professional wrestler or a 98-pound weakling. It doesn't matter if you are a Pharisee or a dying thief. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. It goes straight through the cross. Romans lays it out for us, this beautiful passage. It's, a, it's an invitation. It's an embossed, beautiful, gilded invitation given from heaven to us to be one with Christ. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, that's good news if you're guilty. Good news if you're guilty. You won't be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's an admitted tension. I'm going to make a confession here tonight. There's an admitted tension in my belief system. I do not believe, nor do I teach, that a true Christian can ever lose their salvation. And yet, at the same time, I want you to know that I ask Jesus Christ to save me every single day. Is that not a contradiction? No, I don't think so. You see, I want the Lord of life who has once and for all saved my spirit from sin, my death, and hell. I want that same Lord of life to save my mind from apathy, from depression, from anger, from lust, and hypocrisy. I want the Lord of life to save me from all the idols I routinely find tucked away in the closets of my secret desires. I want the Lord of life to save me from the clutches of an aggressive, merciless tyrant 
named self that battles me, that battles him for control of my life on a daily basis. I want to be saved. So how will I be saved? By crying out to him constantly. Not one time back in 1987, but every single day crying out to him, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, change me and make me holy. Jesus, save me. And that is why I insist on coming so often to the table of the Lord. What better opportunity could I find to plead with Christ to remember me than when I'm in the act of remembering him, his cross, his agony, his death. I remember that there was a day that he was counted with my kind. You know what I am? I'm one of those transgressors. I'm no better than that thief on the cross. He was counted with my kind, the transgressors, and it was in that very moment that he made intercession for my kind. It's the perfect sacrifice of his own life on the cross. Tom Hall, our friend, calls the table, the Lord's Supper, our opportunity weekly to re-up with Jesus. I love that. As we have considered the sacrifice of Jesus this evening, I want us to come to the table and think about his body, his blood, and ask him tonight, remember us. Jesus, remember us. Jesus, save us. Jesus, make us holy. And you know what I can promise you? You know what I can promise you? The answer is this. Today. Today you'll be with me. Some of us are thinking, well, I'm not ready to die and go to heaven. No, no, no. You miss the understanding what the, what the, the, the process of, of our salvation is all about, what the meaning of our salvation is all about. We're not saved to die and go to heaven. We're saved to be reconciled to the Father right now. If you say, Jesus, remember me, guess what? He's going to say, today you will be with me. Today you will be with me. He says in the, in the passage of Scripture that if anyone comes to me, I will in no way cast him out. Will you come to him today? I want to ask if I could, Paul and Randy and Daryl and Don, if they would come help us. I didn't ask anybody beforehand, but if you come help us with the table, that'd be great. And just uh, we're gonna we're gonna just worship for a minute or two. And um, whenever you're ready, don't don't rush down here. This is a night of remembrance. I mean, you can come anytime during the song, but don't feel like you just have to get through the line. Just take a minute and remember the sufferings of the Lord Jesus and and be willing to to say to the Lord, maybe, you, maybe you're here and you know that things have not been great with you and Jesus this week. Maybe you're here. Maybe. I don't know everyone who's here. Maybe you're here and, and, and the Lord is revealing to you that you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus. You know what happens tonight if you'll say, remember me? If you'll say, save me? You don't need a script from me. You just cry out from the depth of your heart, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, save me. Can I promise you something? He's coming running. He'll save you. Today, you will be with him. And so I want to invite you. I want to invite you. If you've never done it, do it. If you've done it, but you've been so far away from the beauty of his cross, from fellowship with him, I want to invite you to just come back. And if you've had a pretty good week, and all your prayers and your Bible readings up to date doesn't matter. Look to the heavens and say, remember me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Make me holy.